In this episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, we're doing a deep dive into Trump's criminal cases. First up, the election interference cases against him at both the federal level and in Georgia State. And in past glory, we talk about the Monroe Doctrine and what it's meant for US foreign policy. Welcome to another episode of What's the Story, Old Glory. My name's Todd Muller, sitting here as always in the beautiful Tauranga, and my co-host, of course, as always... Elizabeth Soule in beautiful North Otago. Well, we thought, because I'm sure like you, you have been watching um, the television and seeing all the coverage of uh, Trump every second day being in another courtroom, uh, we thought it would be worth just reflecting a little bit on the various uh, charges that uh, the former president uh, has to face, is facing, and what the likely um, process is going to be between now and the election. Uh, and we will make some assessments of what that could mean as we go through the process. But we've certainly been asked questions from our uh, listener feedback that we they wanted a bit more of a deeper dive into what are these cases that uh, President Trump has to deal with and uh, what that could all mean. So, uh, Elizabeth, you have been doing some fantastic work uh, plowing through all the indictments. And uh, perhaps if you could uh, kick us off with uh, perhaps at a high level of what uh, President Trump has in front of him at the moment. Yeah, so yep, I've read through the indictments so that our uh, listeners don't have to, um, which is no mean feat, I can assure you, given how many charges he's facing. So in terms of a bit of a summary, Trump is currently facing four criminal cases um, at both the federal and state levels. Uh, so two are in relation to election interference with the around the 2020 election results, and then one is in relation to hush money payments. Uh, made to uh, Stormy Daniels and two other two other people. Uh, so that's in relation to the 2016 election campaign. And then the final one is the um, allegedly illegal um, storing of documents related to the presidency at Mar-a-Lago, his resort in um, in Florida. He has also been facing two civil cases, um, which have. Uh, although they might, they're likely to be appealed, that the, the judgments in terms of the um, substantive courts he court hearings have been put down. Um, so the first one was in relation to a, the defamation case that uh, E. Jean Carroll, the reporter, brought against him um, for things he said on um, Truth Social and in other media outlets in relation to her allegations of sexual assault. So the court found in her favour and ordered Trump to pay her over $80 million in damages. That is likely to be appealed. And then the other one is the um, verdict came out just two days ago, and that's in relation to um, business dealings related to the Trump organisation. The co-defendants were Trump and his two sons, um, Donald Jr. and Eric. And that relates to things that they that they wrote in their in applications for loans and that sort of thing, which overvalued um, the Trump organization's assets. And they've been ordered to pay $350 million in damages, also likely to be appealed. But interestingly, if they do want to appeal, they have to um, 
put up the damages money essentially as a bond while that appeal gets heard. So that's an awful lot of cash to have to come up with in a very short space of time. Um, and where they're going to get that money from is, is a question at the moment. Interestingly, it could come from um, the PACs, which is the political action committees, which are set up under United States law to raise money for campaigns. They are theoretically separate from the formal campaign funds and campaign organizations that, that um, candidates have. Um, but any money that that a that any person donor puts into those um, political action committee funds can be used by Donald Trump to either pay his legal fees, which they have been doing up till this point, or even to pay um, damages and fines that he has to pay as a result of some of these cases. So really, you're saying that uh, you know his um, Donald Trump 2024 uh, campaign. Um, program and his emails that he sends out to people saying, you know, make America great again, um, that people sign up for that and give $5, $10, $20, that he then has the right to take that money uh, and essentially direct it wherever he wants to go. I mean, I would have thought that would have to have been targeted uh, or used for, you know, TV ads and promotions for Trump himself uh, in the election. And you're saying, no, the rules don't they're not that specific. If he wants to take some of that money, he can use it to help, essentially, uh, help fund his um, appeal if he chooses to appeal uh, that three hundred and fifty million dollar fine from uh, the New York court. That's extraordinary. Yeah. So there's two, and maybe we'll talk about PACs more in another episode. But but there's the there's the official campaign itself, Trump twenty. 24 campaign and then there's the PACs which are these separately organized committees which do their in theory they do their own fundraising and they do their own advertising and everything and there has to be a wall between the PAC and the official campaign. A very thin wall. Yeah yeah there's a whole lot of legal issues around PACs and how they were set up and and that's gone all the way through to the gone all the way to the Supreme Court about how they're treated under the law um it's quite complex, but essentially, if you donate money to one of these action committees, then um, Trump can use that money because it's not an official campaign fund. Uh, an interesting thing happened in relation to a PAC last um, during the Super Bowl, where um, RFK Jr.'s one of RFK Jr.'s PACs um, put up an ad um, for his campaign, separate from his campaign though, so technically not directed by RFK Jr. himself in theory, um, yeah. but, it's, but it, it used the imagery of, it, it used an old Kennedy ad from um, JFK and uh, had his family members in it using old footage and that sort of stuff. And his and RFK Jr.'s family who have distanced themselves from, from him completely, particularly in relation to his stance on vaccines and that sort of thing, um, have, have been up in arms and said, how dare you do that with our family name, blah, 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 using the images without our consent. And he's saying, well, it was the pack, it wasn't me. So that's how it plays right. out in American politics. Interesting setup. Right. Yes. So it's extraordinary. So the two um, uh, civil cases are the ones that have got the media attention at the moment. And yes. gosh, when you add that up, that's $400 million worth of uh, you know penalties that uh, Trump is facing. Um, and as you say, I think quite powerfully, the um, business dealings uh, case 
has a massive impact because he's got to find that money, $350 million, to be able to put in an appeal. So I suspect he'll be very focused on um, on that as opposed to day-to-day politics. But then you said there's these four other um, uh, cases uh, which are significant and, you know, relates at a federal level to essentially him, uh, you know, uh, allegedly trying to stop the results of the election um, in 2020 uh, occurring. Um, tell us about those. So, yes, there are four criminal um, cases that he's facing, a number of charges across those four. And because they are quite in-depth um, and they've all got different complexities, thought I would cover two in this episode and then in our next episode we'll cover the other two. So starting off with the cases that relate to Um, election interference. So there's two cases here. There's the federal case and then there's the state case in Georgia. So unlike New Zealand, uh, America has federal criminal laws and state criminal laws. And basically what's happened is the federal government has alleged that he has breached the the national level criminal code. And then the the state of Georgia has separately um, charged him with breaching Georgia laws in relation to um, alleged election interference. So the first case um, I'll go over is the federal case. So our listeners might remember um, when I was in Washington, D.C. last month, Trump appeared in court there and it was in relation to this case. It's being brought in in the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., He's facing four charges for violation, violating the U.S. Code, which is the um, codification of all the general and permanent federal laws of the USA. So it's an enormous, it's an, an enormous statute. Of the four charges, the first are criminal conspiracies. So essentially, he he committed these. Um, He's committed these crimes allegedly with co-conspirators, and those um, conspirators include his attorneys, um, advisors, and um, one the most notable name being Rudy Giuliani, who most people know as the former mayor of New York, who has been one of his um, legal advisors. So the first one is um, a violation of Section 371. Uh, which is a conspiracy to defraud the United States by dishonestly, by dishonesty, fraud and deceit to impair, obstruct and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, certified by the federal government. Um, and this is punishable by up to five years in prison or a fine of $250,000. The second one is um, a breach of section 1512 subsection K, which is obstruction of justice. And this was about impeding the January 6th congressional proceedings where the results of the presidential election were collected and then counted and certified. Um, This section is generally about witness tampering, but it also includes attempts to influence, delay or prevent official proceedings, which is what January 6th was. Uh, Next is a breach of section 241, which is about civil rights. So this is um, alleged a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. So they're saying that um, the the actions that Trump and his um, allies undertook 
um, have were a conspiracy to prevent people exercising their constitutional or legal rights, and that is punishable by um, a term of imprisonment of up to 10 years and, again, a fine of up to $250,000 because they're felony charges. And then the last one is in relation to Section 1512C22. These, these charges um, result from the recommendations made by the um, January 6th Congressional um, committee hearings that uh, recommended that the Justice Department prosecute Trump. And I would recommend our, our listeners to to seek out those hearings. I've listened to them in full. There's a variety of platforms that you can hear them on or watch them um, on YouTube. They're really, really interesting. They have so many witnesses, including Trump's own family, um, that talk about what ha the events that happened in and around January 6, which is when the rioters stormed the Capitol building and tried to prevent Pence from um, undertaking his ceremonial duties and um, officially counting the electoral college votes, uh, and so essentially, and that was, um, as I say, run by by Congress, um, and uh, really sheds a light on on the incidents that we didn't necessarily see from the short short pieces we would have seen on TV. These specific actions um, that that resulted in these charges. Um, are that uh, Trump and his co-conspirators used knowingly false claims of election fraud to get state legislators and election officials to subvert the legitimate election results and change electoral votes for Biden to electoral votes for Trump. When you think about the interview that I did with um, the reporter from Nevada, this was one of the things she talked about. So it, it resulted, essentially they, they went through a process as soon as the election results came out of claiming that the election was stolen. There were extra votes cast um, fraudulently for Biden and votes for Trump were taken away and not counted. Um, and that resulted in them pushing the um, pushing those key states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Uh, Trump made those phone calls and as did his um, his friends and allies to try to get the election results changed in those states or put up those false electors like what happened in Nevada. And that's the action two, is that um, they put up these fraudulent electors, and some of them, some of whom were tricked into participating, um, because they thought that their votes would only be used if the if Trump succeeded in his lawsuits that they also ran in par parallel with this process um, to to overthrow the election results, all of which failed in the courts. Trump was unsuccessful across the board. So um, what on earth would his defence be? I mean, I, I guess listening to this, um, the big word that jumps out to all of this is conspiracy, right? That's knowingly um, doing something which you are conspiring to get a different result from a point of view of knowing that what you're doing is fraudulent. Now, I assume his argument will be, well, we, we genuinely thought that um, what we were doing was right. We didn't, think, we didn't think this was a conspiracy at all. We have real concerns over the way those votes were counted. And what we were doing is asking the questions that anybody would want to ask to ensure that the, the votes were, you know, that the right result was um, landed on. 
Uh, is that essentially what his defence will be? And, you know, how threadbare is that? So the conspiracy results uh, as, as a result of the fact that there was more than two people involved, that it was a group of people who came together to form the scheme, basically. Um, so Trump's first defence, and this is what I was in court for in Washington, D.C. back in January, his first defence was to try and get the to get the charges thrown out in their entirety by claiming that the actions that he took in relation to January 6th and these other um, actions that they undertook in relation to the specific states were that uh, that was part of his executive function as president. And so he was undertaking official acts in the office of president. And so therefore that should be immune from prosecution. Um, the court threw that out, threw that argument out and said no, because as they argue, as they put questions to Trump's legal team on the day, does that mean that a, that a president could have essentially get away with procuring murder for hire against their a political opponent and they would be immune from prosecution because they were, if they're not um, impeached by the Senate. So that got thrown out. That is going to the Supreme Court. So that's likely to be heard by the Supreme Court next month. Um so that's one limb of his defence, that they're official acts and therefore he's immune from prosecution in that regard. It's likely that one of his other defences will be around um, freedom of speech. Um, so he's constitutionally protected um, to, to, to use free speech um, as he wa wants and that the things he, he genuine, yeah, genuinely believed that the, that the election was stolen, even though there's a lot of evidence um, against that, a, a lot of people have said no. He he was advised, his the people around him were advised that there was no legal basis for doing this. But having that small group of people who were sycophantic to him, who were able to to convince him that he was right and that the election was stolen, that may be that may be the argument that they run. Yeah. Uh, Trump is the first president sitting or otherwise to be indicted on criminal charges so we're in new territory around all of this as to as to how it's going to play out i think it's to fair to say that it forward president ford not pardoned president nixon after his resignation he would have crossed that threshold first but um it's just extraordinary isn't it just the level of um uh, you know, when you step through each one of those charges uh, that sit behind each each um, court indictment is it's just extraordinary um and so he's i can sort of see in terms of i mean you know I'm, I'm no way being an apologist here for him but you can you can sort of see how they could make a defense that um he genuinely thought this was the case the, that's what he was advised i mean we can all see the 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 you know the flaws in that argument but you can sort of you can sort of see uh at a level how you could put up a defense like that that said, I would have thought, um, uh, and I suspect now moving on to the Georgia case specifically, the that phone call uh, has got to be the one that we talked about a couple of uh, episodes ago, where we hear him saying, all I need is 13,000 votes or whatever the specific number is. I mean, it's hard to walk back from that, I would have thought. Yeah, so so the Georgia case, as I said, it relates to the acts that were undertaken specifically in Georgia um, as a state, and he is facing over 40 charges, so a lot, lot more, um, as well as co-defendants in this case, um, for violating the Georgia Code, which is the compendium of all the laws in the state of Georgia. Oh. So I'm not going to go through every single count, but I will... Um, 
40 uh, charges. Yeah, but I'll go through that they that some of them are sort of replicated because they're he's alleged to have breached um, different sections more than once. So they yeah. um, cover uh, violation of racketeering and corrupt organizations act, solicitation of violation of oaths by public officers, false statements and writings, impersonating a public officer, forgery, filing false documents, attempting to influence witnesses, conspiracy to commit election fraud, conspiracy to com commit computer theft, conspiracy to commit computer trespass, conspiracy to commit computer invasion of privacy, and perjury. So there are um, several co-conspirators, as, as I said, and they are alleged to have formed a criminal organization, which is defined in the statute as a group of individuals associated in fact. And so if that sounds like it's talking about um, uh, mafia organizations, that's exactly what this that part of the statute, what's called RICO, was aimed at. Um, that's why it comes under racketeering and corrupt organisations, because it was an act put in place to um, be able to prosecute people who are involved in organised crime. Wow. So the, the alleged criminal acts, there's 161 of them. There's a lot. Um, and it includes things like phone calls, things that were said in the media, and even tweets. Some of those things that I mentioned earlier in terms of the counts, it talks about things like perjury and filing false documents. And that's because there were Georgia government hearings in December 2020 um, to determine whether there had been election fraud. And so Trump and his allies tried to persuade those state legislatures legislators to reject the official electors and their votes and um, appoint false electors. And so because they um, appeared at that hearing, they had to provide evidence and statements and that sort of thing. And because there's no that the Georgia hearing rejected their arguments, essentially what they're saying is you and your allies lied not just to the public, but to the hearing as well. So that's where those charges yeah. of things like perjury and filing false documents come from. Gotcha. That's powerful. That's a piece of that Georgia process I wasn't aware of, that Georgia mm. itself, knowing that so much focus was on that particular result because it was so close and so critical to the final result. They did their own review. Uh, and, of course, Trump's team turns up to that review and basically... Um, spills um, bile and lies and, you know, fraudulent statements uh, to try and create the sense of it all being, um, uh, the whole result being fraudulent. Uh, and of course, that being thrown out and uh, is really double back to bite them. Just, you know, just listening uh, from a New Zealand perspective, this feels to me a little bit like a shotgun approach where you fire, you know, you look for every single possible angle of a, of a piece of statute or law that possibly has been breached and you throw it into the, into the pot, as opposed to picking, say, for example, the four or five absolute slam dunk uh, areas and saying, we're just going to prosecute them on five. Um, I'm not a lawyer, but it, is that a fair assessment that um, it's a sort of in America, it's like, if you can if you can make a case um however thinly that a particular statute has been breached then you put it into the mix and make it as big an indictment uh as possible what's your thought on that yeah well that's so 
Trump and his allies have always argued that this is politically motivated, and we'll come back to talk about the um, the state uh, attorney general who's prosecuting this in a second, because that's a critical issue in this case too. But um, it, I, it, it, I think it's fair because a lot of the commentators have said as well that there's so many charges across these four um, cases that he's facing, you know, just just over 40 in this case alone, that it's likely that 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 at least one is going to, he's going to be found guilty of at least one. And if one of these alone carries a prison term, uh, that's got huge ramifications for his um, election campaign, but also if he's if he's sentenced to a term in prison, he and then he's elected president or he's elected president whilst in prison, um, he can't undertake the um, the uh, duties of his office, and so therefore he would likely be released, and he's able to probably able to pardon himself as well. There was a, an election worker, Ruby Freeman, and her daughter, who Rudy Giuliani in particular. Um, repeatedly said over and over again in the press that they had um, passed a USB stick to each other while they were counting it. Because remember, in America as well, it's again, it's different from New Zealand. In New Zealand, we literally tick a piece of paper when we go behind a voting booth on election day and put it in a box. In America, they're generally voting machines. So it's done by a machine and you and you type in um who you want to vote for and all the other down ballot issues. So what they, what Rudy Giuliani was suggesting was that R- Ruby Freeman and her daughter passed to each other a, a memory stick, a USB stick, which had voters' votes on it, which somehow gave all these votes to Biden. Um, and she's received death threats. Um, she has been re- harassed and intimidated multiple times by many different people, many Trump supporters, had to go into hiding. It turns out that what she passed her daughter was a stick of gum um, because this was all recorded and so you could see it. Um, And so it wasn't immediately apparent what was in her hand that she passed to her daughter, but it was a stick of gum. It wasn't a USB stick. And so her and her daughter successfully sued Rudy Giuliani separately in a civil case for defamation and late last year the um, court um, ordered him to pay 150 million dollars so 75 million dollars to them each he's effectively bank he already was pretty pretty broke but I think he's now effectively bankrupt because of that so it covers a it go it covers all of these actions um, right from like I say ringing up officials like the governor the secretary of state and the house speaker saying you've got to find us these votes to harassing an individual election worker and everything in between. That's a fantastic summary, uh, Elizabeth. Tell us about this, um, the individual, the prosecutor, uh, you touched on that in in Georgia. So Trump has always maintained that these... um, that these charges are politically motivated by his political enemies um, to uh, essentially disrupt his his bid for the presidency. The district attorney that's prosecuting this case is Farney Willis. And um, so Trump's defense team, before this even goes to trial, a separate hearing process is going on right now to seek to have her removed from the case. What they're claiming is that she has a conflict of interest because the special prosecutor that she hired to help run the case, whose name is Nathan Wade, she then had a romantic relationship with, which is a fact. Um, and basically what this, they, they both say their relationship um, began after Wade was hired. 
um, and has since ended. But Trump's team is saying that they already had a relationship and then she hired him. So therefore, there was a conflict between her and the special prosecutor. Um, so Farney Willis should be removed uh, from the case, which doesn't sound that big a deal. But because of the way um, the system is set up with district attorneys um, in the states, it would be her entire office that would be removed from the case. Um, so that would cause a major delay in bringing the case to trial if they're successful. Right. So that's that's going through the court at the moment. Interestingly, four of the defendants. So, like I say, this was a this was an alleged criminal conspiracy. Four of the defendants have already pled guilty and um, made deals in exchange for them testifying against the other defendants, which includes Trump and Rudy Giuliani. So, um, were they senior? Again, those other four. Sorry to interrupt. Those four that have already pleaded guilty, um, which is a classic American thing, where you plead guilty to you know, lessen your own exposure because there's a bigger fish up the, you know, uh, mm. b- b- bigger fish up the tree to totally ruin my metaphors. But um, who are those four that have already said, yep, we did it? Are they are they senior people or junior, more junior people? But they're all involved and, and were part of the conspiracy, certainly, and, and had active roles in advising Trump at the time. So um, I, I don't have their names um, in front of me, I'm afraid, but... Um, that's that's going to be pretty damning evidence if, if this goes to trial. So you've, you've suggested there that potentially if that um, conflict of interest um, uh, case goes Trump's way, that that uh, Georgia uh, case could be delayed. Obviously can't not proceed because it has to be heard eventually. Um, mm. So um, if if that doesn't go his way, uh, when would you expect the uh, Georgia um, case to be heard? Everyone, of course, wants to know whether it would be this side of the election. Uh, and then, of course, that um, the election interfering um, case, the federal case being held in Washington, D.C., that uh, uh, you heard. What what are we looking at there in terms of the, the, the time frames when the rubber hits the road and people make decisions as to whether he's guilty or not? Yeah, so depending on what happens, we'll start with the federal case. So depending on what happens with the um, with Trump's motion to get the um, charges thrown out, um, that's before the Supreme Court at the moment. Assuming that the Supreme Court rules against Trump and says that the that the charges can go ahead, that's likely to go ahead. The substantive trial is likely to go ahead in June of this year. So before the election in November, and then the Georgia case. Um, like you say, assuming the um, the uh, district attorney doesn't have to stand down from it, we're looking at a trial in early August for that one. So the election interference uh, one being uh, prosecuted in Washington, D.C., June, I mean, that is the time when the Republican convention is set to occur around that time. Uh, and... Um, then, of course, it's the run to the finish, the summer, uh, early fall campaign, summer through to the first week of November. How on earth does that work if he is going to um, need to be circling back to Washington, D.C. Uh, to that um, court case? Or will he just simply not turn up to the court case, just carry on and ignore it, say it's all a conspiracy? Uh, Democrat job and he just campaigns as if it's not happening. Yeah, it'll depend on what uh, whether he needs to appear in court or not. Um, 
like I said, he was there in January in DC um, for that oral arguments when he didn't really need to be. Um, so yeah, it's, it depends who's giving evidence and whether he wants to be there or not. He tends to treat his court appearances, of which there's always already been many, um, as campaign events. He uses it as a way of rally, rallying support from, from his base. Um, and so he'll probably carry on in that vein. And let's not forget that there's also the other two cases, which we will go through in the next episode, in relation to the classified documents and the hush money, uh, which will also highly likely be heard before the election. So it's, um, it's it, I mean, we keep saying it. It's unprecedented, and it's we're just it's... in such uncharted territory that I don't like to make. I, I don't want to make predictions around how this is going to go. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that firstly, this has been brilliant, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you for uh, diving into the detail and explaining for the listeners so clearly. Uh, and you're right. As we're going through that, uh, I had sort of thought, "Gosh, that's a huge." Uh, a swathe of uh, indictments, and then you remind me. Oh, next next episode, we've got two more. Two more. Uh, in terms of you know half of Mar-a-Lago full of papers about North Korea uh, and hush money to prostitutes. I mean, when you think, as you and I have done and followed American politics for years, that you know normally a minor um, uh, indiscretion, uh, be it commercial uh, or um, romantic would be enough to bowl a candidate in history. Uh, and yet we're here with an absolute avalanche of um, uh, alleged wrongdoings and misdemeanors and conspiracies, uh, at, at, you know, using um, uh, statutes that were designed for the mafia. I mean, it is extraordinary. And as we sit here today, the polling says that if the election was held this Tuesday, Donald Trump would get re-elected uh, for a second term. Um, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. And as you said uh, earlier, uh, before we started the podcast, except, of course, for your American voter who has to choose between Donald <laughs> yeah. Trump uh, and an increasingly doddery President Biden. But uh, that all sits in front of us. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite extraordinary. Thank you very much. What a, what a tour de force that was, and we look forward to uh, the next episode where we deal with uh, lost papers. Uh, and um, I've never met that woman. I've never met that woman before in my life. Uh, type of defense. <laughs> yeah. Right. So our other usual spot is uh, past glory, and since I've already done a lot of talking, um, it's your turn. Even though you've done it two weeks in a row now, but. Oh, look, that's Who okay. Have you got for us look, this week? Well, I thought I'd do um, uh, something slightly different. Um, I've been uh, listening to some of Donald Trump's uh, speeches uh, with some alarm. It's normally quite a lot of alarm to, alarm, to be fair, but it, this was quite concerning his comments around NATO and mm -hmm. uh, particularly the comments that have been well traversed and attacked uh, understandably over the last week or so, where he essentially was saying that, uh, look, if the NATO partners don't uh, fund their defence uh, contributions to the appropriate level, uh, if, if that meant that if Russia then decided to uh, expand their territory and had a go at them, well, you know, bring it on, essentially. 
just extraordinary thing. I mean, this would be an extraordinary thing for anybody to say. One would assume the only person who'd ever say something like that would be uh, a North Korean dictator or maybe a Chinese leader. Uh, but f- coming from the United States president is absolutely staggering. Why, of course, is NATO as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization established post the Second World War to create stability in Western Europe in particular, that sphere of influence, and to act as a bulwark against the Soviet Union, who, of course, uh, at that time, post the Second World War, had all of Eastern Europe into its sphere of influence. And it made me reflect on spheres of influence and America's history as to whether they have always been quite as essentially the world's policeman. You get a real sense with Trump that he doesn't want to be the world's policeman. He'd rather go and have a barbecue and beer with Putin and uh, Kim Jong-un, and that would be uh, a, a, him showing that he knows how to cut deals, not particularly interested in the hard, hard work of um, you know, managing spheres of influence and keeping alliances together. So America, have they always been this global uh, in their intent? And of course, the answer is no, they haven't. And um, they initially had quite uh, a perceived isolationist perspective, understandably very anti um, the European powers because they had fought for independence from Great Britain, who was one of those independent powers. And um, I wanted to focus on a president um, this time who uh, created um, a doctrine named after himself uh, called the Monroe Doctrine. I just wanted to quickly step through that. President James Monroe, fifth president of the United States, from 1817 to 1825, uh, had a incredible feud with somebody called Alexander Hamilton. It appears in that musical, uh, almost had a duel, but uh, uh, was sort of talked out of it um, by his best mate, uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was an absolute um, understudy of uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, met him uh, in uh, Virginia and um, uh, in his younger life, uh, and had a very close uh, professional relationship all through his career. Um, What I wanted to touch on was, in particular, this Monroe Doctrine, which was the first time, really, that the United States uh, held a sort of seminal statement with respect to its foreign policy. And the context of this, this was announced in 1823. And, of course, in the context of this, you have had the uh, extraordinary uh, Napoleonic Wars, Uh, that had um, completely upturned the balance of power in Europe. And that had led to uh, most of the Latin American countries uh, receiving their independence from Spain and Portugal. And um, essentially, the Monroe Doctrine was uh, directed to the Western Hemisphere, or the, the as the Americans saw it, the Eastern Hemisphere, which was uh, Europe, telling them, hands off uh, the Americas. We will look after ourselves. Thank you very much. Uh, And the Monroe Doctrine was essentially the Western Hemisphere, uh, which, by the way, the Americans would have uh, significant control over. We will be independent uh, and we will not want uh, and we would fight against any um, recolonization by European powers of the of the American uh, hemisphere. And there's a bit of irony in all of that. I mean, that um, statement really was only underpinned by British naval power, which was hugely dominant through the 1800s. Uh, many would argue that the Americans themselves uh, have acted uh, in uh, you know quite colonialistic ways subsequent to that. 
But I thought that would be just, it's a useful sort of um, historical context when you hear President Trump uh, essentially putting a bonfire under what we would argue their closest allies of uh, the UK and in particular uh, Europe, Western European, um, the EU allies, all who participate in NATO and America, such a big part of that, such a huge um, part of their military spend is a contribution to the ongoing stability of Western uh, Europe. Uh, they have bases there, they have servicemen there, and you just think that, you know, a period of time back, uh, they were very much not like that. In fact, they had to be dragged into World War I uh, and essentially also dragged into World War II in many respects, <clears throat> though many of our listeners would know the work that Churchill had to do on Franklin Delano Roosevelt to get him to support the British. Um, you know, the Americans have the sense that they are their own continent uh, and not too concerned over what happens uh, outside of that continent. And I think that strand of isolationism, strand of America first, is a big part of what uh, uh, is Trump's appeal. Uh, and that is part of what sits in the balance as we look forward over the next six months, uh, whether, um, you know, the Monroe Doctrine is going to become more prevalent in American policy as opposed to the far more internationalist and globalist policies of the last uh, seven or eight presidents. So James Monroe, uh, fifth president, but is probably seen as having um, the most extraordinary impact on Americans' foreign policy um, of those early presidents. Wow. So I've heard of the Monroe Doctrine before, but didn't really know, don't know a lot of the ins and outs of it, to be honest. Um, so was that the, so that doctrine remained in place essentially right up until 1917 when the US did enter World War One. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, it had its, um, it, you know, it had its own uh, sort of tweaks on that, which uh, became uh, particularly um prevalent under Theodore Roosevelt uh, when he was uh, president. He had this sort of big stick policy, you called it, uh, and um, uh, the United States sent armed forces in the Dominican Republic in 1905, Nicaragua in 1912, and Haiti in, Haiti in 1915. So mm -hmm. um, initially America um, had this view that they were in charge of the Western Hemisphere but didn't do a heck of a lot about it. Uh, from an American interest perspective, because the dominance of the British, but as World War One, as the sort of militarization of the world occurred into the start of the 20th century, and obviously is leading into World War One, America spent quite a lot of focus on securing its interests in Latin America, and were quite prepared. There were a number of people in the American um, political establishment to literally focus on ensuring that it spread its um, you know, power in, in the Latin American countries and, frankly, just leave Europe to be Europe and fight themselves to a standstill. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, um, America uh, swung in beside um, Great Britain and entered uh, the war in 1917. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, it's, it's really interesting, the, the swings and changes that have happened in US foreign policy, as we talked about with Professor Patman at the end of last year, um, and how it's changed over time, and that we are seeing a swing back to sort of a contraction of, um, it's quite a change to, to how it was in the second half of the 20th century, when America really was pushing for the spread of Western democracy across across the globe. Um, we saw the, the, 
you know, the democratization of many parts of um, the Balkans, Africa, um, and whether that's going to contract now in the era that we're in. Um, we're seeing the rise of autocracies and strong men leaders in many countries, and some argue that that's exactly what Trump's trying to do himself and are fearful about if he was to gain a second term, what that would mean for the future of democracy in the US. So it's a, mm. it's a delicate time that we're living in in that respect. It is, and it's what makes um, you know fascination with U.S. politics so um, resonant for us, right? Because mm. you know, if you've studied a little bit of American history, you know that this is a period of you get a sense. Sorry, this is a period, a period, a period of great global flux, uh, and normally in that context, you would expect a pretty deterministic, muscular America to have a view as to how they were going to make that flux work for them. Of course, underpinned by the values of, you know, you know, Western democracies. But that's not what we're seeing. You know, we've got a very tired and diffident uh, president who, uh, frankly, if he wins, will struggle to survive a full term. Uh, and, uh, you know, Trump, as you've perfectly illustrated um, uh, with your wider comments this morning, uh, under, you know, really, frankly, you know, why would a person like that ever get elected in America, particularly at a time like this. Fascinating. That's why we love it, because none of yes. us knows what the next chapter looks like. Uh, and that's so different because actually, if you, without the benefit of hindsight, I think, you know, if you if we helicopter back to say um, the late 80s, early 90s, and that sort of um, uh, Bush and then Clinton period, you had a, um, you had a sense of, um, uh, you had a sense that you sort of knew there was a stability about it. You had a sense that, you know, America was the policeman. They would make some calls that you wouldn't agree with, but by and large, you could sort of get a sense of what the next two or three years could look like. We are nowhere near there. We have, you know, we have no idea what sits in front of us three or four weeks or months out, let alone three or four years. So it's been a long time since we've collectively felt like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's been a, a great episode. I hope our listeners um, found that educational. And if you've got questions about um, Trump's um, criminal cases, either the ones that we've traversed today or the other two that we will cover in our next episode, then please let us know at oldglorypod at gmail.com or send us a message on social media and we'll do our best to answer them for you. But um, for now, thanks for listening. Uh, see you next time from North Otago. I'm Elizabeth Soule. And from Todonga, I'm Todd Muller. Haerera. What's the story? Old Glory is written, produced, edited, and presented by Elizabeth Soul and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can find us on all the usual social media channels at Old Glory Pod and send us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com.